Ephesians, called to walk in Christ. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Our Need, His Grace, by Rev. Paul Bucknell. Produced by Biblical Foundations for Freedom, www.foundationsforfreedom.net. Releasing God's truth to a new generation. We've been going through a series in Ephesians, called to walk in Christ. Today we'll be focusing on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We'll be talking about our need, His grace. Our need, but His grace, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. What are the most memorable um, experiences that you've had in your life? Often, they're set in a point of contrast. I can remember different uh, situations in my life where at some time, I might have been on a very high mountain in the, in the middle of uh, Taiwan. Looking down, I, things were so small, it was like in your airplane. Or I can remember swimming in some tropical waters and uh, seeing the fish and a big sea turtle and things like that. It's a lot of special contrasts that we find in life. Uh, we find them in nature that God gives us with the dark and the light. We find them in people's lives, uh, being happy and being sad. God uses these type of situations, whether we're grieving or whether we're just so joyous, to cause us to remember, to cause us to particularly um, focus on certain issues because they're so special. Now, in God's word, he's done the same thing. He's brought it about that we would be able to learn and remember special things from his word. His word, after all, is the most important thing that we would remember. Now, I want to talk about two contrasts that he gives us. The first one we already talked about. It was a contrast we find in Ephesians chapter 1 about Christ's life. There in Christ's life, we talked about how that he was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the way chapter 1 ended. But early on, it gave indication that this was not the whole story about Jesus Christ. Because at one point in his life, there he was, dead. There in Ephesians 1, 7, it talks about his blood. A contrast between Christ's death, total vulnerability, lack of control, to that one where he has control of every certain thing in all the universe forever and ever. That was a one contrast. This contrast, though, was, however, embedded in another contrast. And I'll call that the contrast of redeemed man. Redeemed man. It's where the very beginning of chapter 1 starts talking about man in a certain way and then continues on right into chapter 2. Well, in Jesus' life, we looked at two reference points, his death and his great glory. Now, in other places, like Philippians 2, it talks more about his coming to earth. It doesn't talk about that in Ephesians 1. You need to go to Philippians 2 to read about that. But with man, he gives us three reference points. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. The first reference point talks about 
man before uh, man in Christ before time. That's when whoops. Man in Christ before time. He was so blessed. He was chosen to be God's. He was holy. Uh, and the second reference point, which we'll be focusing on today, is man, uh, man in time itself. Uh, and thirdly, man in Christ after his belief. Now let me just talk a little bit about number one, uh, reference point. Now reference point is what I'm talking about in terms of contrast. When you have a contrast, you're going from black to white, one point to another point. The contrast itself makes it very special and significant. And this is what I mean by reference points, different aspects of contrast. The first we learned about how God's riches were lavished upon man. In verse 3, every spiritual blessing was given that redeemed man. That man was chosen in him. He was predestined. He was adopted in Christ, redeemed in Christ, forgiven by Christ, revealed God's whole special will. So man, in a sense, is so special, so secure. He belongs. He was released. He's pardoned. He's a partner. Partner with God. Unbelievable. This is all talked about in Ephesians 1. And we can't get all into that again. But let it be one side of the contrast, okay? That first reference point where we think of, wow, before time, God chose men, certain men to, and women, of course, to be part of that wonderful plan. Now, today, we're going to be talking about the second reference point. Later on in Ephesians, we'll be talking about the third. But today in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, we're talking about, I have it down low, a low point where we talk about man in his low estate. In contrast to his great uh, predictive glory, we're talking about man in his resultant sinful state. And we'll talk later about why that actually is so. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Let's read that passage and then we'll um, pray together. Let's read it all together, please. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we want to thank you so much for bringing to our mind this great contrast about why it is that you would choose man to celebrate with you the great riches in Christ when man, as we just read in Ephesians 2, has such a terrible background. Lord, we lack everything. We don't have what it is to gain all those things that you would want to give to us. We don't have that moral righteousness. We're lacking, Lord, a love for you, a love for others. Lord, we don't understand, Father, why you would ever reach out to mankind like us. But would you please, during this time, Lord, unleash the power of the truth of God in these verses and help us to see, Lord, how great your grace is when we can understand how much we don't deserve any of that grace. Teach us, O Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
We'll be looking at three points here. Each one has to do with the verse, Ephesians 2, 1, a description of man's natural state. 2, 2, the description of man's world. And thirdly, description of man's heart. Verse 3. First of all, a description of man's natural state. What he's like. In verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. First thing, of course, that you kind of bounces right out to you, you know. You. It's not just talking about anybody. It's just talking about you. And you, in this case, of course, in a narrow sense, talks about the Ephesian church that he was writing to. He's talking about people who say, yeah, I'm saved. I know God. The holy people. But here he's talking about you being dead in your trespasses and sins. And it begins to cause some questions in our mind. What does he mean? What does he mean? Well, first of all, we talk about these you, um, the Ephesians in this case, but in a more general sense, all of us being dead in our trespasses and sins. And you say, well, what does that dead really speak about? What is dead talking about? This dead actually is a word... uh, that describes a total lack of life, lack of ability to communicate, move, to uh, understand, comprehend, be aware. It's, at, uh, it's in one sense uh, described as being isolated or separate, separate, uh, separated uh, from all things living. Dead. He says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But he says, well, what is, why are we dead in our trespasses and sins? He gives us two reasons. He says, one, our trespasses, our trespasses. This word to trespass simply means to cross over, almost in a sense of unknowing what wrong you're doing. Like I was walking along and I stepped over into someone else's property and he says, ha, look it, you know, you're on my property. I said, well, I'm sorry, I didn't know. I didn't see a line here, you know, in the road or anything. But the point is that he did cross over, and there were consequences. We think about the, uh, in the recent news, about the ship being captured um, by the Iranians, right? The British ship. Because why? Well, they crossed over into the Iranian waters. A trespass. There's things that we've done wrong, whether we consider them wrong, important or not important, but in in fact, in God's sight, he says they're all very important. And because of that, we've trespassed. He says we've sinned. This word um, is, best, is, is best. There's about seven Greek words, by the way, for um, sin in, in the Greek New Testament. One of them is this one, amartia, which speaks about missing the mark. In other words, if you have a bullseye, right? Uh, you have a bullseye, and you take that arrow, and you shoot. And what happens is you miss it. You miss the mark. But it describes us in our life because there are things that God has called us to do, and yet we have missed that standard, what he actually called us to do. We missed it. And we look back in our life and says, whoa, did I make a lot of wrong decisions? And if you look at your whole life, you say, I've been going the wrong way. We've missed the mark. So he says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. No life, no communication with God, left out. But look, what does it actually mean? Well, let's think about it a little bit more. In Genesis 2.17 it says, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For the day that you eat from it, you shall surely, what? Die. Not say you might die. You surely shall die. And whether you think eating that one fruit, that trespass in that sense, because God said don't, is sufficient to warrant death or not, God said it was. And so we find here that death came upon all man because Adam sinned. Now you say, well, what does that death mean? Let me just suggest here that at first, this death that he speaks about here is not so much physical death. Now, it includes physical death in the long term, okay? But in the short term, he's, this phrase here is not so much talking about it. He's actually talking to maybe Ephesian church, maybe had about 80 people there, and they were listening. They were not physically dead. And to say that they were, in that sense, physically dead at that point in their trespasses and sins would not be quite the right picture. He's trying to get at a different picture where he's trying to describe what's happening in a spiritual sense in our lives, where man is separated from God. Man is no longer gaining from the richness of, of a joint life with God. It's gone. It's missing. It's missing. So what does it mean in our own personal lives? What does it mean in the people around us? That there's something missing. There's a whole void of life in what we would call normal life. It's not as it should be. Jesus, for example, apostles said it. Um, Jesus said it. He said, I am the bread of life. He's talking about people who have not yet taken part of him and believed in him. Don't have life. It is through Jesus that life comes. And without it, we're spiritually dead. There's no hope. No ray of hope. Let me just think about what it means practically and, and point out three things here. First of all, it means we're condemned. There's a judgment of death upon those who have sinned. And this is the way. We're just condemned. We're judged. And there's no hope that way. We can't bring it life back. Once you're dead, you're just dead. It's not like you say, well, I've been dead three days, five days. Well, three years now, I'm, I think I'm going to come back to life again. I'll surprise my friends. It doesn't work that way. You might say, well, I'll plan on coming back to life ten days later. You, you just can't do that. You can put it on your calendar, but it doesn't work. Why? We just don't have that power to come back to life. Spiritually, we're just dead. <laughs> Now, I want you to think, we're thinking about that on a physical level, but on a spiritual level, it's true too. There is no way for anyone who is spiritually dead to say, I think I'll wake up now and become alive. Unfortunately, most people think, one, they're not dead spiritually. Two, even if they were, had some problem in life, they think they can find a way to come back to life. But what he's saying here is there's no power, inherent power by which we can make ourselves alive to God and live in his presence again. We are absolutely dead. And thirdly, of course, we are miserable, devoid of life's touch. You might have a dead tree. It's very different than a living tree. My apple trees are getting ready to blossom. The leaves will come out. The fruit will come out. And the worms and the apples. <laughs> but the point is that it's living. It's living. 
It's producing, it's bearing, it's growing in every way. It's taking of life's source and growing. That's spiritual life, you see. If you're dead, it's just not growing. There's nothing happening in you. If you find in your life there's nothing really happening, perhaps you are spiritually dead. But if you are spiritually dead, remember, there's no way on your own you can say, well, I'm going to start meditating and I will just bring myself back into communication with God. Or I'm going to start, I'm going to earn a lot of money, but I'm going to give my wealth over to some charity. And I will make a difference in giving. And somehow God is going to favor me and I will be reconnected with him. It doesn't happen. You see, we have, Paul is describing here so clearly our spiritual death because he wants us to know how we cannot ever save ourselves. There's two verses I like to mention here. The first, Acts 2.38. Peter preaching to those who are lost, those who are spiritual dead. Repent and believe and you shall be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent, be baptized, and you'll be saved. You have to believe in Jesus. He's a source of life. If that source is not in ourselves, it's in him and what he's done for us. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the life. No man can come to the Father but through me. You see? A lot of people hope in their religion, in their philosophy, in their goodness. But none of it, none of it can help man. We looked at this description of man's natural state. What is your natural state right now? Are you spiritually dead? Or are you alive? Has something happened in you that transformed you, that now you have God's life working through you? Many, many people are dead. We need to have great compassion and go out and to preach the gospel to them. Let's go on and look at part two, the description of man's world. It says here, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. There's a spiritual network out there, whether you want to admit it or not. I know there's a lot of secularists out there, okay? And they do not believe in anything but materialism. And they can track down to our chemicals in our body, you know, and just analyze everything. But there is a real spiritual world out there. And frankly, if you look with any sense of open uh, awareness, you would see that this world is under a dark, influential power. Now, he describes that here. You see, he's not only interested in telling us that our natural state was, is death, spiritually dead. He wants us to understand how terrible our predicament and situation is. There is no way we could ever save ourselves because we are all bound. I mean, isn't that what it's saying? Every one of us here, I, I can just guarantee, every one of us, had this chain around our neck. Could you take it off? No. First of all, you were spiritually dead. Second of all, this to you was like home. It's like home. 
You formerly walked according to the course of the world. This is the way you felt okay. It was comfortable. There's excesses you don't like. Okay? You still see these protests. I don't like those G5 nations and, and you know things like this. Okay, there's protests. You don't like extremes that threaten your, how you understand your, the course of your work on, on earth. But still, it's the home that you're trying to protect, your, your natural habitat. It's the way you walked. And the way you walked and thought and talked was just like the world. Do you like to be popular? Do you like to sing those songs, think those ways, talk those words, play those games, dress those clothes, you know, swing that way, study that way, whatever it might be, degree that way, and uh, get a job that way, get a house that way, get a car that way, and just flow with the world. But we should see that there's something very limited here. Because that sounds awful like just the way that most people are doing things. And if that's the way most everybody's doing it, the course of the world, is it perhaps there's somehow that we are just part of that? Is those chain perhaps still part of my life? That world is very real. And we are in that world. And every one of us, even if you have come to know Jesus Christ, we're part of that prison, that darkness, that barrenness of the world around us. Peter carefully warns us of something. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Praying, loving, a sound judgment. Are you getting carried away by the influence around you? If, you know, it just happens so easily. You just step away from God's word a little bit. What happens? Your judgment all of a sudden becomes confused. You become dull. Your values all of a sudden begin to be get shaken. Compromise hits, sits in. There's no sense of burden of praying or evangelizing. It's all gone. So easily. Remember, the world is not far away from us. It's close by. Temptation is right there. Second thing it says about man's world is that the world is ruled by Satan. The world is ruled by Satan. According to the prince of the power of the air. Now I use the word Satan because in the scriptures this is how it describes it. Now there's a lot of evidence. Now a lot of people deny the presence of an evil one. But there's a lot of evidence for it. You, know, you just see it. There's always a downward tendency. Here, can you believe a Philadelphia federal court judge would trash an online porn law? He says, this is what he wants to do. I want to be so nice to all the children and allow them to see something very evil that will hurt their lives. This is what this judge is saying. I want to be fair to them. I want them to be destroyed too. I want you to look at porn. Okay? I want you to be destroyed. This is what he's saying. An open law. He should be put in jail for wanting to hurt children. And yet he's a federal court judge. It is impossible, incredible. Our modern world pretends to be fair and just. But what it does, it doesn't care and has no compassion. Think, we care about 3,000. You see these uh, you know, people protesting the war. Yes, it's terrible. It's tragic. 3,000 Americans killed in the war. 
But do you realize, probably in the same space of time, space of time, I don't know if you can say that, in the same time period, we have over a million children in America, probably several million throughout the world, that have actually been killed, aborted, destroyed. Why? Usually because inconvenient. Now here, for some reason, we will say, oh, 3,000 people, so important. But 3 million, 10 million children? Who cares about them? Destroy them. That's legal. That's okay. The modern world pretends we are fine. We're upright. We care. But in the end, when you look at their practice, it is horrible. It is treacherous. The marks of the evil one is all over them. Jesus rightfully said, you are of the father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar, the father of lies. There's a lot of people who don't believe in Satan. Why? I mean, just think about it. Here they are going around in their life. They're, you know, planning for their great career and things. If you introduce a character like Satan and say he's in charge of the world, he's saying all of a sudden, well, if he's in charge of the world, what does he have to do with me? They have to deny him. Otherwise, they have to admit to his influence in his life. They don't want that. So liberalism and feminism and materialism and secularism and humanism and all the other isms revolt against a Satan. But in the scriptures, God says he's behind the scenes ruling and has his chains about the next. And only through Christ you can be free. We have a message to tell people about Jesus. It's the only way they can find forgiveness of sins. Only in Jesus he is painting such a dark picture here, which is the right picture, so that we would rightly respond to God's grace and see how amazing his love is in Christ. The world is ruled by Satan. And lastly, he says that the evil spirit works in those in the world. We just talked about that. He says, the prince of power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, I want you to think about what that means. It's very interesting. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And you're saying, well, what does that mean? Satan, his spirit in us? Hmm. Is this possession? What's it talking about? What kind of spirit is this? Let, let me just reflect a little bit. Let's see. It's not the Holy Spirit, not a capital S. Actually, the Greek didn't have capital and small s's. But very clearly, the context is not talking about the Holy Spirit here. He says whose spirit it is. Whose spirit? The prince and power of the air. Okay? Who, di who wants darkness. Who, who brings about death and, dis and destruction. He doesn't care about people. Well, another word for this, actually in the Hebrew and Greek, you'll find another word for spirit, another meaning for the um, word spirit, pneuma, is air. Just air. Wind. And... Uh, uh, it, it doesn't mean that here. It, it, it clearly doesn't mean that here. But it does help us. This illustration, this analogy with air, helps us to understand what the spirit really means. The spiritual essence of one. Okay, By spiritual, I mean the unseen essence of one. 
we know that the evil one does not have what we say a good spiritual life. Okay, uh, he 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 has a spiritual essence in the sense that he's invisible and he has his influence. Now for air, each of us know we breathe it in and breathe it out. Right? Take a breath right now and breathe it out. Okay. Now what happens? You know, if you study a little biology, it's not just as simple as that, is it? You know what happens to the air that goes in, that oxygen, right? All of a sudden it goes in and whoom, into your heart, into each of your cells, into your cells, brings that oxygen to your tips of your toes, your fingers, and your, I think your hair. I haven't studied that much biology. And, uh, someone say no? I don't know. Okay. Um, maybe that's why my hair is falling out. No, I don't know. Uh, but, we see here that the air goes to every part of us and influences us. If we don't have that oxygen in a quick moment, we will begin to suffer dramatically. Now, when that spirit, the essence of the Holy, uh, of the, excuse me, of the devil is in a person, he actually influences that person's life. His decisions, his thought process, his ways. You can't say he, the evil one lives and he doesn't have an influence on me. The world cannot say that. It says right here very clearly that spirit works in the sons of disobedience. That is actively showing itself in the sons of disobedience. That's why they're disobeying. Again, therefore, Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. What a wonderful promise, isn't it? Even though we are in darkness, we formerly walked in the course of this world. Now, we can follow Jesus and walk in his light. We don't have too much time to talk about this. In the next couple of verses, you've got to come back, because this this passage ends on a, on a negative note. We'll look at the third description here of man's heart. Um, this should actually point C, the description of man's heart. We find here, first he described man's nature. Second of all, he describes man's world and how terrible it is. Thirdly, he describes man's heart. You say, well, you know, I know some good people. Okay, let's get into that question a little bit here. Because it, Paul is trying to expose that very point. There is no such thing as what we call good people. Among them, we too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Ephesians 2.3. Now, why is Paul talking that way? He's talking because he cares for us. He has a great desire that we would know him. He cares for us. He wants us to, to realize that we need help. And the only way to help is to present Jesus. But a lot of the reason people don't want a Savior is because they don't think they're lost. And so he wants to get rid of any deceit, any of those lies that cover over our eyes. Really know what our state's like so that we can find blessing in Christ. Now let's <clears throat> look a little bit more carefully um, at this verses here. First of all, he says that we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh. He's revealing what we're like. You see that? Now you say, you might say, well, that is too revealing. I mean, 
is that true with all of us? And you say, well, you know, uh, <laughs> in Chinese, you know, I, I, I want you to look at me if you know that's true about me, that I indulge in my flesh. How many want to admit to it? Yeah, well, there's a couple, maybe there's one honest people here. I, I wouldn't even put my hand up. I don't want to say what I've done in the past. I don't want anybody to know what I've done in the closet of my life. Can we just say that Paul is exposing what's really the case here? That really we indulge in the lust of the flesh and not one of us is an exception? And so whatever we would say that there might be a good person out there, let us remember what? In his life, he has indulged in the lust of his flesh. Now, we're going to look a little more carefully at this. Uh, I notice that the next um, thing here, I do not have the right verse here. This is not verse 3. Um, but I want to go on and uh, talk about, you know, there's a lot of people that uh, talk about their feelings. You know, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. But, you know, sin is like a scent. It spreads about as much as it can. Uh, that's why perfume bottles are small, you know, no little, no air in them. Uh, if you let a little perfume out in this room, it will just go to each aspect of the room, you know. Uh, if it's a bad smell, maybe this is more of a right picture here. We have a bad scent, you know. <laughs> wow, man, you know, we're passing the paper factory or something. Wow, where is that? It's far away, but we still smell here. It will go as far as it can until there's an um, impermeable barrier. Now, we need to understand sin is just like this. When you say it's not so bad, you know, sin is not so bad, it's because of your background. Okay, so if you have a big circle, that air is going to fill up that whole circle there, okay? You have a small circle. It's just, just more constraints. It's smaller. And so it will be compressed into that smaller uh, boundary, okay? Well, what happens is in that area of less constraint, there's more sin, and with that more constraint, there's less sin. But it's bound. It's compressed. It's not so obvious. It's not so extensive. So if you say, well, I'm not bad as, as that person over there because they openly do this or say that. Well, yeah, that might be true. You give thanks for your situation. It perhaps is because your parents actually disciplined you. It's perhaps because you have a great desire and discipline in your life where you can say, I have a goal of getting a PhD. And I, I, I suppress all these other things for the sake of that. But that doesn't mean inside you don't have any of these indulgence. It doesn't mean that at all. You might just be very prideful and arrogant, whatever it might be. But the point is he's saying that we all have those um, issues. Let's look at a couple conclusions here. First of all, we're equally unholy. We're equally unholy. And by this he's saying, <clears throat> if we have sinned in such a way, if we really belong to this world, <clears throat> then we all are equally unholy. Which basically means what? That none of us deserve God's grace. Now this is the point of contrast that we have been talking about. If we really in no way deserve God's goodness, his love, not even a little measure of his love, then all that we read about in Ephesians 1 becomes almost incomprehensive. Why? If we were so utterly despicable, full of God's wrath in our lives, are we 
like this. God's people, it also says that God's people no longer live this way. We might be those people who are so sinful, but God saved. But when we are saved, we are no longer to live those ways. We formally walked according to those ways. That's the way we used to do it. The way we used to do it. It says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. So we all participate in living by the lust of our flesh. But let's go on and think about what it means, the destitution of our flesh in Ephesians 2, 3. We actually lived in the lust of our flesh. I have a diagram here, and I'd like us to look at it. Uh, trying to understand what, it, what does it mean. Our flesh, by the way, is that description of our natural, uh, corrupt heart. Those, that thing that operates us. It's our operating system, natural operating system. And when we have that heart, it desires things. And so it reaches out with arms called lust or sinful desires to try to gain those things that it wants to feed itself. It always pulls those things inward. It's the exact opposite of love, which the gospel gives us power to live by, where we actually care about others and open our hands up and reaching out to others to help. This is the way our natural man works. The will is the desires of the flesh. Uh, notice here, it says the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Let's look at those. The desires of the flesh, talking about that actual will, that heart to get those things. I'm greedy. I, I really want to get that Apple TV. You know, I, I just have to have that car. I, I want that degree. It's so important to me. Um, I, I like to, you know, uh, I want... Yeah, I don't, I get jealous of maybe that uh, guy over there or that girl because, you know, they have that friendship. Um, all those types of things of greed and selfishness and desire and uh, covetousness, lying and stealing. It's, it's all those things, but the desire is from within. I want. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll sometimes, we'll be doing something good and all of a sudden, you know, we'll sense that, oh yeah, I could make some more money if I did you know, that. Or what if I, you know, looked over there at that person's test? Maybe I could get an answer. You know how it works. But it, it's very close by and, it, and it's diabolic. It affects our will, the heart. It also affects the desires of the mind, the thinking. This is where perhaps it gets more complicated in sense of we're thinking about the plots by which we're going to fulfill the desires of the flesh. They work hand in hand. So in other words, I would like a better grade. But you have to think about, well, how am I going to do it? Well, let's see. If I made a little crib sheet and stuck it up my sleeve with all the right answers, then, uh, you know, then I could figure out a way I could do this. But it's the mind operating along with the, the desires by which we gain these things. Uh, religion is another form of these thoughts that are just simply deceptive. It, religions are man-made thought systems which boast in man's own goodness. It believes man can somehow, by doing something on their own, obtain that oneness with God or needed salvation. Where God says, there is nothing man can do. Man lives in a state of God's wrath. This is thirdly our clear picture of our own judgment. We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, we're, we've said a whole lot of things, and we're going to summarize it. But I, I just want you to, again, stay in the slide here. He's saying something very significant here. 
we have a whole clear picture of our judgment. Uh, there's those word letters here, D-O-A. What does it stand for? Anyone know? Death on arrival. Do you ever think about it in a spiritual way? Children of wrath. What is it saying? We're born into God's wrath. Now, this isn't because we all have morally done something wrong at that point. It's just that when we are born, we're our descendants of Adam. And we're in Adam, we all die. We are born, in that sense, with a sinful nature, which hasn't fully expressed itself, but is judged and corrupt. And God has distanced himself from it and made all of us in his wrath. So if you think of a bowl, you can throw all what you call all the you know, uh, Christ, uh, non-Christians, unbelievers, you can throw all the Christians. All of us at one point when we were born in this world were this way. And baptizing them, making them say holy things over them, getting someone to pray for them, doesn't make them, take them out of that bowl of wrath. It doesn't. Simply, be, uh, simply because one, number point one, remember what it is? We're, we have a nature that is evil. Two, we belong to the prince and power of the air. We're under his control. And thirdly, our heart, our lust, our desires are not for what God pleases God. Let me ask a question. Are you still under God's wrath? How do you know? You can just check your life. Do you still secretly do the things that don't please God? Do you really still secretly try to do those things? I'm not saying in front of others. You can fool us, but you can't fool God. And Paul's trying to help you understand no one you can fool. You cannot fool God. He's there. The only way to get out from his wrath is to turn to Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Where you have death, he brings life. Where you have no way, he is the way. Where you only have lies and falsehood, he has the truth. So let's just summarize this contrast that we've been looking at. Chapter 1, he talks about man, his special, secure, belonging, released, and pardoned status. Amazing and wonderful. He doesn't deserve to be chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, or forgiven. Especially, especially, when you look at man who's dead in his trespasses and sins, especially when you look at man who walked according to the course of the world, verse 2, or whose nature is the children of wrath, his heart. By nature, he's the children of wrath. It's just, he's totally unable to save himself. Do you see this here? Now, I can go up to a per dead person, I, can, I lo might love them so much, and say, come back to life. That's not going to do anything. And he might want to come back to life. And that's still not going to do anything. It's true on the physical level, on the spiritual level. It's all the more true that not one person can save himself, use some type of religion or philosophy to think that he could be saved and come to the light, the power of God in his life. It's because we are utterly lost. And when you know a person is utterly lost, you know only Jesus can save him. It says here, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's God, what he did in Christ. Can you read that with me, please? 
For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. He took us from where we were enchained, the domain of darkness, brought us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. These things are true for believers. And he wrote these things that, one, we would be humbled. To put away our arrogance, to think at any point in our life, in our Christian lives, we would forget that we utterly saved by his grace. So that we would put away all our pride. We would be appreciative of the things that he gives us. So thankful for our state and never forget to be thankful for Jesus. That we'd be more devoted, be evangelistic and share the good news of God's light with others. Why would we hold back when people so desperately need his light? That we'd be kind to others as he's been kind to us. You know, sometimes we forget to be kind to people. Treat them better than they deserve. That's our life. Grace written all over us. We need to live it out in our lives. And lastly, like Paul started in Ephesians 1, 14, uh, 1 2, 3, 4 and onward, was just praising God. Blessed be the God, you know. God is so good. He wants us to join him in that chorus of praise, telling him about how great and glorious he was, just like we sang earlier in the songs. <laughs> this is one of our, not most recent, we had a recent snowman, um, but this is another one. Uh, their problem was they couldn't get the ones on top of each other, so they just laid them down, the snowman, <clears throat> and they considered him dead. <laughs> but dead in our trespasses and sins. I'd like you to just make a decision today. I want you to think. It says in the scriptures, as soon as you walk away from here, Satan's going to try to take these truths from your mind, and you'll forget about them. You'll be distracted with other things, other people, other conversations. Do you need to repent and believe in Jesus? Do you need to be baptized and come to know Jesus Christ? Do you? Make a decision to do it. So yeah, I'm lost. We'll just say, okay, I want to know Jesus. Okay? Simple as that. Second of all, leave your sinful life. If you profess to know Jesus, and yet you're still indulging in your flesh, there's something wrong. Either you're really of the world, or there's something wrong with your confession. You need to turn away. Can you think of something right now? Are you one of these people? Then turn away. And thirdly, if the first two don't aren't true with you, think about any type of indulgent type of uh, desire in your mind, in your heart. What is it that holds you back from growing and serving? Just tell the Lord, help me to cut that off. I'm going to work with you. I need your help. Would you just share those three things with others? Uh, I mean, whatever is true in your life, try to find someone through the week that you can share with. Maybe not even here, but it's good to share here. That God can all the more help you to be faithful to that decision. We need to support each other. God has offered life when death is so powerful and strong around us. Ephesians, called to walk in Christ. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Our Need, His Grace, by Rev. Paul Bucknell. Produced by Biblical Foundations for Freedom, www.foundationsforfreedom.net. 
releasing God's truth to a new generation.